This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Why, hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is K.C. Miller, who is a female-to-male-to-female detransitioner. A few weeks ago, she posted a short video describing in neutral, fact-based terms the impact that testosterone has had upon her body, mostly having to do in this video with male pattern baldness or very extreme uh, form of hair loss. And this video went really, really viral on the old Twitter. It got up to 387,000 likes, 20,000 retweets, 6,885 comments, and a number of the top or premier trans influencers on that platform and other platforms decided to rate Casey over the coals for this for a variety of reasons. The backlash to Casey just being very honest and open about her experience was very telling about the insecurities of certain forms of popularity contests within the trans rights movement. So since then, she's done the rounds and I was able to have her on my show. And in this conversation, we get deep into her past and into her mental health issues, which were used as evidence for transition rather than a comorbidity that transition itself wouldn't solve and transition didn't solve her mental health issues for her wonderful, wonderful, wonderful young woman. I am very proud to present you to her for your enjoyment and consideration. Without further ado, here is Casey Miller. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can too. Okay, good. Because I have like a blue Yeti microphone in front of me and I'm ho- I was hoping that it would connect correctly. So is this your first time using it? Um, I used it in the Blair White interview and she said it sounded fine, but I wasn't sure if she was just humoring me or not. How far away from your face is it? Your mouth? Um, a little over a foot. Two things. One thing closer to the better, but it's up to you. Like, do I need to adjust anything like adjust the gain or anything? If you wanted it to be sound better, it would, uh, Get it as close to your face as possible. Oh, okay. That's number one thing. Secondly, would be to like later on down the road, if you keep on talking to Blair White every week, mm-hmm. how often do you guys talk? Well, no, it was just the one interview. So far. Yeah, so far. Um, I, I I don't know. I I I haven't done I think since her, um, and then I did Shapeshifter like right after her on the same oh, yeah. day. Um I haven't done any interviews because I've just been trying to like process everything because unfortunately I'm coming to all of these realizations live. Like this isn't like in retrospect, this isn't a year or two years down the line. This is like, this is actively happening. So (laughs) I was like, okay, take a step back. You know, just give me two weeks. Yeah. Slow down. 
process. Exactly. So do you have a journal? It's, it's, I, I see you have a whiteboard. Are you charting everything out? Yeah. Oh, shoot. I should probably take this down. That is a like, check it, that I need to cash. Uh, it's not visible, but yeah. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do journal. Good. Have you always done the journal thing? Um, on and off, I would tend to, but usually it would not be terribly productive. It would just be me um, writing all of my deep, dark thoughts Ooh. in a book. And then I would go back and kind of reminisce on them, which I probably shouldn't have done telling a therapist now they're like yeah that's the situation where you write it down and then you just never look at it again oh so actual certifiably dark thought mm -hmm. okay this is stuff you can mine for like horror movies or dark seditious uh well i mean like it, it, like it, it's usually self-deprecating like i mean like oh. dark about like depression and stuff oh okay I mean, certainly things that I would only get into with a therapist because I don't want to drag anybody else down there. Like, pre pretty low stuff. Hmm. Where should we start? I was going to say, it's up to you. I know we talked over DMs. Um, yeah. So wherever you want to start. I mean, we could start at the beginning of my Twitter career being a very problematic person in the Twitterverse. Ooh, yeah. You hit all the right nerves somehow. I, Phenomenal. I don't know how. It was very, very crafty of you. If you wanted attention, you got attention. <laughs> and that was not my intention at all. When I started this, I think I had 17 followers. <laughs> huh. Um. So yeah. I was on Twitter for like two or three days and I was kind of following some detransitioners. And I think I talked to Prisha, who you had talked to previously. She was like the first real one I had a conversation with. And I was, I came on as a trans ally. Like I thought, oh, I'm a trans man. I'm confident in my identity, but we really need to support these detransitioners because there's, you know, like a, a lapse in medical care and the standards of care that we're following because people with all these other diagnoses are getting misdiagnosed with gender dysphoria and they're getting all these interventions that they don't need to. I was approaching it from the behavioral health standpoint, but then hearing all these stories and kind of like their thought processes and the doubts that they had, I'm like, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait. This, this sounds a little bit too much like my story. It sounds a little bit too much like what I'm thinking. Cause I had always had doubts, but I pushed them back. I always said, I don't have time for this. I don't have time to like think about um, how this might've been a mistake. And it couldn't have been a mistake. You were diagnosed correctly. You know, no one regrets this. It's still trying to play those tapes. And then the video mm -hmm. that I made, um, well, actually, the, the thread that before that, that kind of started to launch things off was like, you know, I, I don't understand or kind of see how I could revert back to assimilating into society visibly as a woman. But I could definitely look back and say that this wasn't the right decision. And I, if I could have revert, like stopped myself from doing this previously, I would have. And then, of course, there were people kind of like hugboxing me saying, oh, it's fine. You just come off the hormones and you'll turn into like a beautiful woman again. And like, you know, you could pass and all of this stuff. And so the next day, I kind of made that video out of spite because I was like, no, like you don't understand. Like, oh, okay. My voice is pretty deep. Um, my hairline, of course, I wear the hats now. Um, you two can be Tim Pool for fifteen ninety nine at Target for the beanies. But like I, you know, <laughs> it, I, more I expensive wear this. than Twitter, uh, getting verified on Twitter. Exactly. Um, it's You'll the price you once. pay to, yeah. Um, flattery is the highest form, uh, or sorry, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Anyways, okay. um, that was a tangent. Yeah. Um, 
but like you know talking about like the hairline the voice yeah. some of the facial hair and just like some of the structural th things that i've seen um yeah. like my frame grew on testosterone i got taller my um arms like my wingspan got wider oh um like i saw like actual bone growth because i was 17 when i started i'm like i i physically don't understand or see how i could go back to living at living as a woman i mean like you know presenting in society and like people look at me first glance and i'm a woman right um because I, I i know that's a contentious thing but like i live in a conservative area if i walked into a woman's restroom right now i'd probably there'd probably be an issue okay um and i posted that video i was like okay that's it maybe this will like shut the hug boxing people up so they can like see the situation because right now i'm just like some random kid on twitter and then it just where was the hug boxing coming from? I think it was coming from the more conservative side of, you know, people saying, well, it's okay. You were always a woman and like, we feel so bad for you. And like, you know, you'll see the light eventually and kind of some of the religious people too, that it was like, okay. well, you know, just embrace Jesus and, you know, live your womanly life and it'll all be okay. Okay. So, so these are non-trans individuals, GC to religious trans skeptic community, which is kind of mm -hmm. an intersecting, um, Yes, I have not received any hug boxing whatsoever from the trans activist side, in case you haven't noticed. Well, since that video, but I would like to hear your introduction to the trans uh, community, oh, okay. insofar as there is a community from your point of view, mm -hmm. if there was Absolutely. hug boxing going in, because oh, they rejected okay. you when you started to post um, counterfactuals to certain elements of their mythos or their mythology of uh absolutely acceptance um, uh, authenticity what was oh yeah what, what the were the buzzwords for you that that like the road signs um the mottos that were helpful for you to think of transition as something that would you know be your path um you know one big term that really stuck with me is you're living your honest truth you get to live who you are meant to be as um, that you're revealing who you are on the inside, but reflecting that on the outside. So now everybody, you you know who you are on the inside, but now everybody can see that. And it's not causing distress because, you know, you have this person you are, no one can see it. And you're trying to tell people that you're that person, but they don't believe you because you don't look like that thing that you say you are. Um, but through transition, which is supposed to be this, you know, happy-go-lucky thing, it's supposed to do miracles and solve all of your problems. You know, now everybody can see you for who you are, and there's no faking, there's no lying, and it's, you know, it's going to solve all your problems, right? Um, you know, it's affirming, you know, you're, you're like, the living is your true self. Um, those were, like, really the big words for me. I, I'm trying to think of, like, other terminology they used at the time, because this was, like, 2016, 2017 for me. And um, where? I transitioned. Reddit, Tumblr, where was um, the... Uh... YouTube. YouTube, actually. Okay. And um, I don't FTM think I was on YouTube? Any yes, FTM uh, YouTube. Okay. Uh, which is... Uh, does it overlap much with the uh, male-to-female YouTube? Um, only when the channels collaborate, but most of the time it doesn't overlap at all. The only time I saw MTFs was when, like, um, say, FTM creators or trans influencers, which, again, looking back is a ridiculous topic, um, they would collaborate with MTF influencers and talk about, like, the similarities and differences between transition and, you mm -hmm. know, kind of their experiences and what had them transition, like, kind of what their um, 
their identity and kind of the process behind that was. Okay. But otherwise, I, I, I had no idea what MTF was, reasonably okay. speaking. So female to male YouTube influencer culture, What what's kind of like the the flavor of that is this a bunch of uh like like what are they emulating like what's kind of so, like the, the signature it's you know, interesting vibe. because people were making the claim about me that like i was mad that i didn't turn into like this you know attractive like twink teenager or whatever but that's very much the image that a lot of these influencers put forward and or they are like the hyper masculine they're the bearded hairy men like they're real men because you know they're able to grow a beard um you know they've got muscle they're bodybuilding you know they're the rough and tough man or they are like this idyllic um like teenager skater boy aesthetic right Mm, okay it's kind of like the the ideal essence of um masculine youth if you will it's all the good parts but none of the bad parts um yeah so bears and twinks is kind of like the two poles of that Mm -hmm. okay and you were attracted if attraction is the right word to which point in this um probably more of like the twink side of just being able to be a teenager um but like in the right body. So like being able to be a teenage guy, that was kind of where I was coming from. That was what I was idealizing in my head mm-hmm. because um, I lost a significant, if not mo- all of my adolescence to mental illness and depression and so on. I didn't really get to do what a lot of other kids did um, because I was just like in and out of school. I was severely dysfunctional. I was disassociating and just, you know, really having a tough time. So I thought, well, maybe like, you know, I'm 17 maybe like in my late teens, early twenties, when I transition and this will fix everything, maybe I can live out some of those teenage experiences I never did, Hmm. um, you know, as my authentic self, which never happened by the way, that spoiler alert never happened, but no, um, you didn't go shred a half pipe after a couple Um, months. I am severely clumsy. Oh, I I tried riding a skateboard once and it lasted two seconds and I was on the ground. So were you like, then did you go like the gamer route and like get up the leaderboards of Starcraft? I'm also, I get way too anxious and invested in games, but I also get super perfectionistic where like, if I make a mistake on a level, like I got to go back and start over. Okay. So then I just had to walk away. Oh, Um, yeah. um, I, in fact, I probably went more the nerd route than anything. Yeah. Okay. Like I was the stereotypical nerd. I was very focused in my studies. I was, um, you know, kind of quirky, but I knew a lot about the thing I was studying. And was that thing object oriented or people oriented? Um, I guess object oriented. Um, cause I was a band geek. I was a music nerd in high school, kind of a classical music nerd. Um, and in college, when I went away to college, my first major was trumpet performance. So you know, talking about the different composers, talking about trumpet pedagogy, you know, the different kinds of mouth, but like, you know, talking shop about trumpets and brass, that was my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And not like boozing out with, um, you know, all the other freshmen at the parties. That that was not my thing. I could not relate. <laughs> you know, they'd be talking about their favorite kinds of beer. And I'm like, this is my favorite kind of valve oil for my specific <laughs> trumpet. And they're like, what is wrong with you? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, um, in your experience of the YouTube female to male trans influencer community, is there talk about comorbidities, depression, anxiety, no. obsession? No. Um, they, they talk about having depression, but they never say that it's on its own. Very few, if any, will say that the depression exists outside of the gender dysphoria. The idea is that the like being transgender and being pre-transition is what's causing the depression and anxiety, and that all of that is magically fixed once you transition. That all of the problems that you had before, um, which there was never any mention of anything like OCD, BPD, or any other differential diagnoses or comorbidities. Um, if anything, it was only depression and anxiety, maybe ADHD. Um, but it was, you know, most of that, not the ADHD, but like the depression, anxiety, this, you know, SI and all of that stuff would just go away. It all went away. You know, I transitioned. It was the best thing I ever did. And now I'm not depressed. Okay. What about sexuality? Are they particularly erotic or talk about erotic drives? Uh, depends on the creator. Some of them stay away from it because it makes them uncomfortable. Others... Um, and demonetizes they're, they're, you if you're not careful. Well, yeah, you get demonetized. And then there's some that... Um, it, it depends on, you know, how they address the topic. If it's a trend and people are talking about a certain thing like use of prosthesis or, you know, like just other things, um, they will hop on that trend. Um, okay. All right. Without like getting too explicit to get you demonetized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's some that were like sex educators. So like there was um, NFTM. I, I think he's still active. His name's Chase Ross, uppercase Chase on YouTube. Okay. Um, that I mean, he's been on testosterone for over 10 years at this point so he's been transitioned a decently long time but he does mainly sex education on his channel and talking about you know all the aspects of queer sex as he would term it um and he's been doing that for years and he okay. was doing that back when i was you know looking at videos and transitioning okay what 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 was the first like time that you started to get interested in the videos like what was it run up to that um probably like april 2017 i was 16 at the time and the first video that i had seen um that showed me what medically transitioned people look like was um i remember it's so vividly is a new york times op-ed um trans in love and at war and it was on the uh trans couple logan and leila ireland um okay i don't know if you know who they are um so Logan Ireland, I don't, I think he's out now. He was in the Air Force and Layla Ireland was in the Army. Um, and they were both transgender, um, FTM and MTF. But like Logan Ireland is like this super jacked dude, like in, in, you know, passing to the max, probably more jacked than most of the people he was deployed with. Um, you know, hyper-masculine, you couldn't even see his top surgery scars. And like, you know, I, I had no idea what was going on. And then he said, well, you know, I grew up female. And I was like, hold on a second. And then he shows the before pictures and talks about how he felt. And, you know, well, this was the thing that fixed it, but now it's creating problems. Um, at least in that context, it was um, talking about like in the military and so on because of don't ask, don't tell. And at the time it wasn't um, super kosher for uh, trans people to openly be serving. Um, you know, so there, there is that flavor to it. And then seeing Layla Ireland, who was, you know, born male, but had transitioned. And I also couldn't tell was biologically male had, you know, looked like a beautiful woman. I'm like, hold on a second. This isn't just like, 
you know, I cut my hair, I wear men's clothes, and, you know, I try and go around and people think I'm like a prepubescent boy. Like, there's actual things, like, there's there's a drug I can take to go through male puberty. There's surgery I can get to, you know, like, get rid of my chest. Like, I had no idea this was a thing. And then that just sent me down the YouTube rabbit hole. What was so fascinating about it? Um, it, it was something I didn't even know was possible. I, I didn't know that you could go through a second puberty, albeit, um, drug induced. Yeah. Um, I, Wait, I honestly hadn't, you wanted another puberty. <laughs> well, I didn't, I, no, <laughs> I, I didn't want the Getting bad bit. side of, yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, it sounds know, ridiculous. Still. I, I didn't realize that, you know, in, in what the presentation was at the time that, um, men could become women and women could become men. Hmm. That's what it looked like to me that like medical science had advanced enough that you could make one look like the other so convincingly that you couldn't even tell. And then I was like, wait a second. He, he has a lot of the same problems I do. And he had a lot of the same feelings I did. And also he was um, a butch lesbian. And, you know, it was in his mind easier to be a straight man than it was, you know, a gay woman. And that this just fit better and it, you know, it fit better for him. And I was like, holy crap, this resonates a lot. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's draw back then uh, Uh to butch lesbian. And before that, so what was your childhood context like? And when did the puberty hit depression and, and then uh, discordance with your body, if that's the proper term for you? Yeah. Um, so depression, I are not depression. Gosh, well, there is a lot of depression, but um, starting with early childhood. I don't remember much of it. Um, from what I know, records say that there was abuse in the home ages four to seven from my father. Um, sexual abuse. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word. Probably allowed to say that. Word. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Um, records and- show. Well, that's what the psychiatric evaluation said. Um, I don't remember, but according to evaluations that were done, like a forensic evaluation um, that was done to try and determine the extent of the abuse that had happened after we had left the environment, that was the uh, timeline they had come up with. Oh, wow. Okay. And when was this evaluation? How old were you? I was probably, I, I was seven and a half when this happened. Oh, wow. Okay. So from... You have childhood spotty memories, it sounds like, but your family uh, kind of broke. Your mom yeah. took you away. Yes. Um, and your siblings? Do you have any siblings? I don't have any siblings. Okay, um, so I'm an only child. I'm also a surrogate child. So I'm my dad's biological child and my legal mom is not biologically related to me. Okay. Because she can't have children. She had a hysterectomy in her 30s because of um, precancerous cells. Um and plus they were both older. So it was, well, I mean, she didn't have a, a uterus, so she couldn't carry a child. But okay. um, so I, you know, I was a surrogate child, but then there was that element of she was technically the step parent and then pulling me away from the biological father. But it was, um, it, oh, that wow. in itself okay. created like an interesting dynamic. Okay. Um, but then around seven and a half figured out that the abuse was happening within two days, I was out of the home. It was, it was quite a tumultuous time because, um, we literally had to go into hiding. Um, like we had to like hunker down in the woods with a family friend of ours, or it wasn't a family friend of my dad's, but a family friend of my mom's and like hide in their basement for a couple of weeks because he threatened to kill us. Oh, wow. Oh no. Okay. So, um, 
Yeah, kind of a kind of a rocky early childhood. So like um, that's second grade, first grade, second grade, third uh, grade. That was, yeah, it was second grade for me. Okay, and what what time of year are, is this in the middle of school? Uh, this is February. Okay, so in the middle of school, you get yeah taken out, ferreted mm-hmm. away, go into hiding. Are you? Yeah, I mean, it, we, do you we do you have memories kind of, of this? Um, I have memories of like, it was like pajama day or something like, um, she found out Wednesday, spent all Thursday packing. And then Friday afternoon, I was picked up early from school and it was like a pajama day or whatever. And then we just kind of went away. Okay. And like, I didn't really know too much of what was going on until after we had gotten to the safe house, if you will. Okay. Um, Which literally it was like in a cabin in the woods. Like it was completely in the middle of nowhere. Okay. But it just sounds like a movie. Yeah, it it kind of is. Um, You know, I I don't remember anything traumatic about it, but apparently I was like screaming bloody murder. Anyways, you know, early childhood was not great. Yeah. Um, Well, I I think it's important to um, to just highlight briefly your relationship with your primary male figure mm -hmm. is not uh, standard. Oh, it was horrible. Perhaps. Okay. Yeah, it was a horrible relationship so that imprints upon you a relationship to the masculine correct at a very formative age correct okay um and um i would try and improve that relationship with a male role model of some sort over the years but even through my transition i would have male role models that would continue to either be abusive or fail me in certain ways um that kind of reinforce that in my head and i'm i'm just realizing now okay um but at the time it was just my dad and then around age 8 so like november december um we moved out of the area that we were in because the state police were like we're doing an investigation you got to get out because things are going to go like things are going to happen if you stay um so we moved out of the area and we moved um to pennsylvania um which is where she's from originally and then that's when the depression and the panic attacks started at eight eight and a half yes correct panic attacks full-blown yep what does that look like for an eight-year-old kid? Um, full-blown, like if I saw anybody that remotely looked like my dad, because I was told, you know, if you see him, like run the opposite way, he cannot know you're there, okay. um, run. Because he was known to violate um, restraining orders. That's ultimately why we had to leave, because he kept violating the restraining orders. Yeah. Um, I would literally just like curl up in a ball and scream. Like like in the middle of a Safeway mm-hmm. or something? Yeah. Okay. And like my mom would literally have to like drag me out, drag me home and like just talk me down. And sometimes it would take hours. Okay. Did you have uh, professional help at this point? Insofar um, as professional help <laughs> well, works I, nowadays. Before but... we had moved, there was a therapist um, somehow involved like with the forensic unit that was starting to work through some of the things with me. But I don't think we really made any progress on the whole panic disorder thing. Yeah. Um, and also, incidentally, um, my paternal grandmother had a history of severe panic disorder as well. And the way that she reacted to certain triggers was identical to how I reacted. Okay. And so that's informing your father's psyche. Not that we can really get into that. Yes. That, oh, and she was, both of his parents were extremely abusive as well. And she was abusive to both him and my mom. Like she tried to burn their house down several times before I was born, broke in, stole, vandalized things, threatened to kill them multiple times. 
she's she was a nut she was a nut okay so you also have images of the i guess toxic feminine and the toxic masculine yeah like very intimate in I mean, your... I, I, I was not witness to that. She died when I was four. I just heard about all these things okay. later. Okay. Um, you know, because I was, I always knew, you know, Grandma Dorothy was a little off, you know, as much of a four-year-old could know. And my mom was like, no, you, you don't understand. Like, she was really off. Okay. And what about your mom's family? Did she have a stable family? Um, yeah, she had a stable family. But um, because of the situation, um, we lived out of state. We lived in Massachusetts originally. Um, we were never allowed to visit them. So I think I saw them like two or three times in the first eight years of life. You weren't allowed by, no. by your father? Isolation. Or? Oh yeah. It was an isolation tactic. Okay. And is there any, is there any like religious organization or larger community that your father, you were involved in, your family um, was involved in before that broke? He apart? really didn't practice Christianity in but he would use it to his advantage. Okay. So he would attend church with us occasionally, um, but he did not read the Bible. He didn't do anything that the book said. He just kind of took what he liked from the church that we were at, which was imagine an old wooden church out in the middle of nowhere on a hill, an old Baptist church where you have to dress up in your Sunday best and you show up and you sit in the wooden pews, no AC, no heating. That was our church. Okay. And during your first 10 years of life, how did it feel to put on a dress and act a female role? in a? It's interesting, dress? actually. I wasn't made to wear a dress. Okay. I, I was allowed to wear slacks. Um, I, it, I, it didn't affect me. Um, I mean, I, I remember there was one time I was like, tried to be forced into a dress for like a Christmas concert. And I didn't like it, but looking back, I think I just didn't like it because it was harder to move around in and I was kind of squirmy and it was okay. itchy. Like, and it was like this weird glittery thing and it was really itchy. And I have this, I'm pretty sensitive, like with my skin. Okay. So I was like, just get me out of this yeah. thing. Like I can't move and it's itchy. And I'm like seven, like just, you know, yeah. like let me out. Okay. Um, you know, but, but like. Being female, I didn't have like a huge concept of it either, too, because I hang I hung out with the boys at recess. Like, you know, we played wall ball. We played all the games together. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I had really long hair, too. I wasn't allowed to cut my hair, even though that wasn't like a standard of our church. Um, and like my mom was fine with me having shorter hair, but it was like down to my waist because wow. my dad was like, no, you're not allowed to cut it. Hmm. Um, so like, just like this kid wearing like sweats and a hoodie, just like running around with this hair blowing everywhere in the breeze, <laughs> you know, playing wall ball with the boys at recess. Yeah. I, I didn't have a concept of, you know, female versus male. Too okay. You besides. didn't like, this is kind of a trope. It actually does map onto a lot of female experience, tomboy experiences. Like, and I'm sorry to bring it up. It's kind of mm -hmm. silly. But no, like, did you want to like pee standing up? Did you try to like act like a that boy? That didn't really occur to me. Okay, so no, I, you, you I, I think I think I tried a couple of times, <laughs> but like it, it it didn't really occur to me that there is like a difference between pee okay. standing up and like sitting down. Okay, so you didn't you didn't uh, obsess about that or, or think about no. that, ruminate about that. Okay, no. All right, and you brought up being sensitive. And you brought up being obsessive. These are kind of autistic-ish mm -hmm. traits. Did you, looking back or growing up, did, Absolutely. You, did you see Absolutely. that and get 
notified about that from a professional? Um, I was not notified of that. And to this day, I am trying to present the history of behaviors that I have that I believe um, demonstrate that there is some neurodivergence going on. And um, most recently, today I had a meeting with somebody because I'm in a day hospital program and the behavioral hmm. technician was like, well, what 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 would the diagnosis do at this point? Like, you're not going to get anything from that. And also, it hasn't really disturbed you in your life so far. Like, you, you know, you've made it through school without accommodation. Yeah. You did college without accommodation. Um, you know, just because you're having trouble socially doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like, we can refer you out, but it's really not going to do anything. Um, which has been, I mean, even with ADHD, which is another form of neurodivergence, um, no one believed me I was having these issues because you're like, oh, well, your grades are fine. Okay. But I, I certainly had like those obsessive tendencies, that hyper focus. Um, socializing was a big issue. It's still a big issue, um, but I've learned to mask it more. Um, just not really understanding social cues or like how to interact. I don't know why no one did anything, but apparently in preschool, um, I did not know how to play. Like I, I did not know how to enter play with other children. And either okay. I would just sit there with a toy like this and just like wait for something to happen. Or I would huh. sit in the corner. <laughs> okay. Huh. And like no one did anything. They were just like, oh, it's fine. Okay. Just quirky kid. Interesting. Uh, I'm, you're of the age that you could have been one of my preschool kids. So I'm trying to imagine like how I would have like tried to connect with you and yeah, break you out and plug you in. Or if I would have just played sp specific games yeah, um, like I did also go through speech therapy because I had difficulty pronouncing certain words, but also um, I couldn't tell a story consecutively. Um, so like all the events would get mixed up. Um, like preschool Six or age? seven. Oh, yeah, preschool oh, age. Okay. Okay, maybe not six or seven. I'm kind of rocky on the time. Okay, lines, but well, was, yeah, you're telling things out of order. Well, yeah, I, and I also don't like know the exact ages either, but whatever yeah. normal preschool age is, um, the reason I was admitted into the preschool at our area because it was kind of selective was because I did have speech issues and I did okay. have like these time sequencing issues and they hmm. had specialists to work on that. Okay. What, what's the, do you know much about uh, what would be a condition that would cause, uh, or what is the condition of being unable to put together things in order uh, for developmental wise? Is that a... So they actually figured out the problem with me was that I was skipping parts of the story because my brain had already moved on to okay. the next part and I yeah. hadn't said it yet. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. the goal was to get me to slow down, like slow my brain down so my mouth could keep up with my head. Okay. 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 So hyper-intelligent, hypersensitive. Yeah. Um, I, I guess hyper-intelligent would be the word. Or mentation, your your mind is faster than mm -hmm. than keeping up or keeping people uh, plugged into what you're thinking at that point. Correct. In time. Okay. What about puberty? What happens there? Your relationship to boys change. Your relationship to your body changes. Um, it's interesting because, like, I I don't remember exactly when I hit puberty. I remember it was a little bit earlier than what it's supposed to be. Um, but I remember like the first time I really realized there was like a difference between like boys and girls and that there was like 
the potential for romance and you know developing and so on was i was in fourth grade and there was like a guy that i was hanging out with aaron and you know we would go to his house and we would build legos and just like have fun and so on and then like we called each other because like on either of our home phones and he called me up one day and he's just like you know i i just need to tell you that i think we just need to be friends and i was like aaron we're already friends. He goes, well, good. I, it's good to know we're on the same page. And I talked to him the next day and he goes, well, you know, I thought we had something going. And I'm like, Aaron, we built Legos at your house. Like, it's not that deep. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. But then I was like, hold on. So there's like something else besides friends? Like, what yeah, is this? Yeah, and then okay. like, you know, you that from then on, like entering fourth grade, I skipped fifth. So I don't have any fifth grade experience, but like sixth grade on. And then like with puberty, it was like, hold on. You know, now there's this other category besides friends. There's, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. And now that's another element that I have to deal with. And, it, you know, I can't just like shoot the shit with guys. It's, you know, are they attracted to me? Or are they not? Do I, is this something I have to navigate now? Um, it definitely made things a little bit more complex. And that doesn't ease as time progresses. No, it does not. Did you, how did you cope with that? Did you figure out the tricks and turns and, or did um, you isolate, just plug, uh, unplug from it? I mean, certainly in sixth grade, I tried, um, and from fourth grade to sixth grade, um, fourth grade, I was mainstream public school. And then in sixth grade, we were convinced by the church that we were at, um, to move to a private Christian school where a lot of the kids from that church went and some other churches and it had good reviews, but extremely small class sizes. So like a graduating class was less than 20 people okay. and you did everything with that class. Yeah. Um, what you know, denomination? So, um, it was non-denominational. Okay. My church was Church of the Brethren, but the um, the school itself was non-denominational Christian. Okay. So kind of not very... Uh, well, how strict was it in dogmatically, morally? Um, I think they were more morally strict, but they, they didn't really... Like, they, they, we didn't wear uniforms. There was a dress code, but frankly, I would say it was probably like an equal dress code to what I dealt with in public high school. Um, and, and generally speaking, like the parents wouldn't let their kids walk out of the door wearing something scandalous, um, because, you know, Christian morals and all that stuff. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of felt like a normal school, but with like a little Christian bent and, you know, like Jesus is always watching you and that kind of thing. And, you know, watching your words and, mm -hmm. you know, throwing little scripture references here and there, but it wasn't super dogmatic. Okay. I don't think. Um, and of course, when you only have 17 people and like half the class is guys and half the class is girls, um, there were cliques that were formed, but there was never like any of the mean girls cliques and there were never any of the jocks. I think we were all just like a bunch of weird kids trying to make it work. Huh. So like in sixth grade, we were trying to figure out like the whole puberty thing, crush thing going on. Um, and me being a year younger now than everybody else didn't help because um, I had skipped fifth. So yeah. I believe like I was nine going into fifth or sixth grade and so everybody else is like 10 11 yeah so um it, but i also started puberty around like late nine early 10 
How did puberty affect you? Oh, it was a struggle bus. By the time I fully realized what was going on by seventh grade, I just shut down. I completely shut down. Why? Um, I, I think the realization of what happened to me as a kid was sinking in because I had had the talk. Um, and I realized what happened and what the gravity was. And of course, we're learning about, you know, promiscuity and purity culture like at church and somewhat in school and how, you know, virginity is like this holy sacred thing. And well, you know, whether it was within my control or not, I don't have that. And now I am impure in the eyes of God. That's kind of the rhetoric that I was receiving. Did any, yeah. did you get to speak with anybody about your own experiences? Were they cognizant, um, your teachers, your pastors and stuff like that? Um, the you? teachers, I, I think some of them knew just because like I was still dealing with like some of the withdrawal and like some of the panic disorder stuff okay. that like if I had a reaction, they would know that's why. Um, my pastors fully knew and my one associate youth pastor, I mean, I talked to him after a lesson because he was basically saying like, you know, purity and virginity is like one of the greatest things that a woman can give her husband. Um, and, you know, if a woman gives up her virginity before marriage, that's like one of the greatest sins she could commit. And so I talked to him afterwards. He knew my story. And I was like, Caleb, like, what, what do I do in my case? Cause like, I didn't have a say in that. I was, you know, like, it, does that mean that I've committed this big sin? And he goes, well, it wasn't your fault, but it's still, you're still impure in the eyes of God. I can't help that. No one can help that. Okay. Um, I don't want to give a youth pastor a, a pass, but we'll just give him a pass right now. But I, 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 in my heart, I don't give him a pass. He should have known better. Yeah, there was a lot of things he said. And he how was old was this guy? Twenty seven, thirty, early thirties. Yeah. Okay. Family? Did he have his own family? Yes. Okay. The kids and stuff. Um. Yeah, he had one kid at the time. Now he has three. Okay. Wow. He's did you... now evangelizing to the lay folk in the Philippines because the Lord called him there. Yeah. Um. But at the time, he was at our church. Okay. Just as an aside. Did the, was there a religious life inside of you uh, or a, a personal spiritual uh, reality to this? Uh, yes. All this um, in, yes. In fact, I, um, I still have a lot of that internalized, even though I haven't been to a church in several years. Um, but there is definitely like, I, I fully believed and felt that the Holy Spirit occupied me and that I was one with God and I would pray and that I was communing with God and all of that stuff. I fully bought in. That was my belief. And in terms of talking about adherence to the faith and being, you know, like a good Christian kid, I was the poster child for our church. I dressed modestly. I never did anything bad. I never talked back to my parents or my mom in this case. You know, I read my scripture. I went to the Bible studies. I respected my elders. I did everything to a T. Um, except, you know, I, I wasn't terribly willing to be like a submissive housewife but as a kid as a teen i was doing everything correctly and i fully bought in because i thought that you know this is what god has called me to do mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and you know this is i'm born into this life to serve god mm -hmm. and to serve the people and this is how i get to heaven you know i believe in him and the faith and all that stuff but you know also it works um it was a huge part absolutely it drove everything i did okay and that was what we were told you know, everything that you do is based on the Bible and God and what would Jesus do? Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't, by the end of it, by like 15, 16, it was like, 
I, every time I wanted to watch a video, every time I wanted to listen to music, every time I wanted to interact with somebody, it was like, well, is this what would Jesus do? Like, or is this what Jesus would do, right? Or is this, you know, what you should be filling your mind with? Is it Christian? Is it based on God? If it's not, move on. Okay. I, I, I want to ask a question about that, but I would like mm -hmm. us to um, kind of go back to the panic uh the panic attacks how mm -hmm. did those did they get manageable and what yes was the um time they ultimately there? did become manageable i believe i had some in early high school but generally speaking um they were pretty much internalized by eighth grade um like it wasn't outward i wasn't you know curled up in the fetal position in the corner or screaming bloody murder um but I, you know, would shut down and I wouldn't talk as much. Uh, maybe I'd cry a little bit, but it wasn't as, you know, visceral of a response or obvious of a response. Um, and this time, instead of seeing somebody that looked like my dad, um, it was any talk about sex whatsoever. Even just the word. Okay. Would like send me into a panic. And I just want to be explicit. Why? Why was that a trigger? Um, because that was the bad thing that happened to me. And also religion says sex is bad. Okay. So, which in reality, my mom tried to have a conversation later and saying, well, no, premarital sex is bad. Sex within marriage is great. And, and you know, I just, I wasn't there. Like that conversation was not clicking. Okay. You know, I made that association very early on. Um, like part of what was bad that happened to me involved the word sex, anything that has to do with that bad. And I react to it. And that okay. was something that was ingrained for many, many years. Okay. And just for all, if you were to retell your story or think of yourself in an alternate universe where nobody, where you guys just fled your family, but nobody talked about sex, nobody talked about what happened to you. It sounds like you don't really remember it. Do you think that that association would have still been there? I, Actually, I, I do remember some of the events. Okay. Okay. And they did come back later on. Oh. Um, so certainly I would have asked questions about what happened because I did. Yeah. Um, and that's what spurred on the conversations. Okay. Um, and feel free to withhold or share as much as you want. How would those memories come back? Like out of nowhere? Or? Um, out of nowhere, stressful times. Um, if I, you know, heard a trigger word or anything like that, um, or I was reading or hearing about like a difficult like family dynamic. Like if it was like a father child or father daughter relationship, like in a story that was tumultuous, that would flip it. Oh, wow. Okay. And how would you generally process these memories that would intrude? Um, I wouldn't, I would try and block them out because oh. it would just, it would occur as a flashback to me yeah. and I would just try everything to block it out. Oh God. Okay. Um, until, I got to the point where I processed what happened. At least the first time I've been told you can process things and trauma that happens. And then like five, 10 years down the line, you think you got figured out something happens and it all comes back. So at least for this round, we're good oh, with man. the flashback thing yeah. that hasn't happened for a few years, but, um, and would the memories Certainly. be mental? Would they come through your body, like like through tension or something like that? Um, Did you get cramps? It would or start like that, as yeah. like I would like I would visually see what I saw, and then the tension and like you know the kind of response would overcome. 
Okay. So instead of curling up into a ball, I would tense up. Oh, wow. Okay. And when did sorry, this is start very to... heavy, but no, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for being open. I think it's, it's important to, to, to hear about, but also I appreciate being able to hear about mm -hmm. your story. When did those flashbacks start? Like what age? Probably 10. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. And they so persisted until I was like 16 ish. Okay. So like the, the gas pedal of your psychic development is pressed to the metal by this trauma. Like you have to actually like catch up to processing mm -hmm. this stuff. This is a lot of load that mm -hmm. you're doing, you know? So, so even though you're, you're immature, you have to be a lot more mature than you are. Mm -hmm. Um, so that could be a discongruence. Absolutely. And kind of looking back, like talking about the timeline, it, you know, okay, so the flashback started at like 910, um, which is also when I switched to a, an all Christian school that I ultimately had to leave because there was like, like a class bullying thing going on where basically the entire class was ganging up against me. Um, and, you know, and puberty starting at the same time and it's starting early and I'm younger than everybody else. And it's yeah. all just combining into one big ball. Oh, no. Because I, I, I kind of, you know, I had like the panic disorder stuff um, throughout elementary school, but it wasn't until middle school where the depression really kicked in. Depression. Okay. Why depression or how did that develop? How, how does it go from panic to depression? What, what's the qualities of depression for you? Um, kind of the low self-esteem and the feelings of hopelessness and, you know, not feeling like I'm worthy or I'm good enough because... Um, that like sixth grade, that nine, 10 was when I, you know, had the talk and I understood more of what happened. I knew bad things happened, but I didn't know what extent, plus the religious connotations of, you know, losing your virginity and being all ruined. of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, essentially being ruined. Um, and also it's just so weird because your... like you'd, you'd think that they'd say, well, Jesus has got you covered, dude. <laughs> you're you're going to yeah, be okay. It... Yeah, um, it was conditional. Uh, Jesus's coverage was conditional. You had to meet certain standards. Yeah, Is there a W yeah. path in heaven? I don't want to know. I was just asking I, that. Honestly, yeah, no, you got to meet certain diagnostic criteria and follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, well, Jesus didn't cover you. He covered the good little disciples. To damnation with you. Exactly. Oh, man. Um, but you know, once I fully understood, or at least at the time, as much as I could, the severity of what had happened and what kind of things had happened, and then seeing my body change and being told like, okay, you're becoming a woman and you were targeted because of this thing that you are, because you're female, you know, by the opposite sex, that just, I, I was like, oh my God, my body's changing. I don't want it to change. And it's gonna, you know, being warned about like the risks of like, you know, sexual assault and like, you know, how to be safe as a woman or how to be safe as like a young teen in mixed sex spaces and, you know, what to watch for and all of that stuff that, you know, teen girls have to go through, you know, with their parents, like those talks. Um, I, I just didn't like myself at all. I, and I just start spiraling down. Okay. And how would I'm you... like, I'm, Oh, sorry. I'm becoming this thing that is going to put me at higher risk to have the thing that happened to me in childhood repeat over and over again. 
and I'm, you know, my body's changing. I don't like change and it, you know, it's all confusing and the hormones and I am just not prepared for any of this. Okay. And I don't want what happened to me before to happen again. Yeah. So that, that's kind of where things really started going down. Not to be poetic in a disrespectful manner, but was depression kind of like the cabin in the woods that you ran to? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, trying to think. I, I definitely disassociated a lot. Um, what does that mean? You know, I, um, it basically means that, um, you pull yourself back It not, not like in a negative sense, you pull yourself back from reality. You feel like you are watching your life happen. You're not experiencing it. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's a response to overwhelming stimuli. I kind when I'm explaining it to people, I kind of compare it to, um, you know, the body going into shock. So like, say you're in a car accident and, um, you know, you're, you're, you suffer a lot of major damage. If you go into shock, um, like sometimes your um, brain will remove itself from reality for a second. Like you'll pass out your, your body will still be feeling pain and, you know, it'll still be firing and doing all the things and bleeding out and engaging in all those physiological processes, but your consciousness will pull itself back to protect your mind from experiencing all of that stimuli because it's just so overwhelming. And that's why sometimes people wake up a week later in the hospital and they're like, I don't remember what happened. I was out riding my bike. And then next thing you know, I wake up here, you know, so another common theme with disassociation is that you don't remember necessarily what happened. Um, and even like in day to day life, like, you know, if I have like a really rough day, I could get to the end of the day. And I'm like, I have no idea what I did today. All I know is that it sucked. Like that, that's all I remember. Like, I can't remember what I had for breakfast or, um, you know, like what I did, if I worked on schoolwork, what the specifics were, um, but it's different for everybody. Okay. But I, I definitely try to like pull back and like, just kind of observe my life and not live it, um, as a coping mechanism. Okay. And when did that start to happen? So far as you're aware of, like how old were you? Um, like that nine, 10 year old range. Okay. Oh, wow. Did, did religion help you to be like in the spirit world or something like that? Help you like, like navigate going from real life to head life? Um, it's interesting because I, I don't think so, but there definitely was an aspect of head life that wasn't disassociation. And it was like kind of communing with God and like talking with God. Um, usually those periods of time would be like when I'm actively like out and doing things or in school, it would be when I'm at home. So it's not like terribly disruptive. Um, I, it's a really good question, actually. Um, my, my spirituality didn't influence my disassociation, I don't think. Um, but you had a powerful I, spirituality. Yes. You know, again, I, I fully believe that the Holy Spirit was inside of me and that, you know, I had this moral compass dictating what was right and wrong. And that every time, like, I would be confronted with a choice and think about doing the wrong choice, even if maybe it's not actually a wrong choice. It's just what, you know, the church has said, like, is right and wrong. I would get this horrible knot in my chest and I would feel sick. I'd feel like I'd want to vomit. And I was told that's the Holy Spirit telling you no. Okay. So I fully believe there is a spirit inside of me, you know, helping me 
to, you know, go on the right path, that it would make me physically sick if I was going to choose the wrong decision. Was there a euphoria and opposite of that when you made the right decision or when you were on the right path? Positive um, I feeling? don't think so. Okay. Most of the time there wasn't. Okay. Um, if there was euphoria, it was because other people recognized I made the right decision. It wasn't, it didn't come from just me making the right decision. Okay. What What are some of the good memories from this time like experiences of bliss uh, experiences of like just fitting in to an activity or to a you know the world um music so i started playing trumpet in sixth grade before that i played bass like in fourth grade but then i injured my wrist and i moved schools and they didn't have an orchestra so i couldn't play the bass and they didn't have a place for me to play the bass um so I switched instruments um, to trumpet, which, fun fact, it was an instrument I tried when I was younger, but I nearly passed out. And they're like, never touch this instrument again, because um, I grew up with asthma. I had horrible breathing. Oh. So then in sixth grade, I went up to the band director and I'm like, hey, I want to play an instrument. want to join the band. What do you need? And I'm like, please say saxophone. Please say clarinet. Please say anything else. And he said, I need trumpets. And I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> And that's how it began. Oh, the forbidden instrument. Did he like open it up and you you had a David well, Lynchian I mean, horror mo moment there? Well, it's interesting because like I, I came down to his office and, you know, we had to talk. I got out of class for it and I wasn't going to complain about that. And he was like, well, I have a spare trumpet in the back. And we essentially like on this first conversation, we had the first lesson. Oh. And it well was... A struggle bus i got i think i played three notes and my face felt horribly numb i don't have you ever played a brass instrument before uh, i know you have to go yeah well it's not as much as it it's kind of like that but the lips have to get so much closer so it's i think i can still do it um so they vibrate very closely together but if you're not used to that um, you know, like the embouchure is made up of facial muscles. So if they're untrained and you try and do something very strenuous, obviously you're going to feel it. And my face was just numb after that, um, playing three notes. Um, and my lungs were not happy with me, but that's how it began. And playing in groups and playing in our little band and then playing in like the county bands, like where, you know, everybody in the county auditions and you get to play in this band made up of all the kids from the county. Um, that was kind of like one of the only moments of reprieve I had because I'm with other band geeks and we're all just playing stuff together and, you know, playing the song and the older you get, the more complex the music gets and the more advanced the musicians become. And then it turns from just, you know, playing with a bunch of kids that have the same ideas to, Hey, we're actually making music now and getting lost in the moment and getting lost in the artistry and talking about artistic intent. And it was something I just lo lose myself to completely. What about all those hours practicing? Um, I was very resistant to practice at first, and I probably have some sort of uh, musical predisposition. Because um, when I was um, younger, before we moved, I was in like a um, kids' choir and I played piano. Um, and they also deemed that I had something called perfect pitch, which basically mm. means that um, you can determine pitches. Like somebody could name off a pitch and you could produce that pitch without having a sample pitch, um, which is somewhat rare. And it's not really something you can teach. Um, so people that tend to be more musically inclined have that gifting. Um, and I had that, which means anybody that was out of tune was instantly sunk because I would tell them they were out of tune because it would annoy me. Um, 
anyways, um, so, you know, I had that predisposition. I didn't have to practice much at trumpet. And within a year, I was one of the best middle scores in the county. Huh. So um, it wasn't until probably later in high school that I actually like dug my teeth into practicing. And it was it was standard for me to do like an hour a day, then an hour and a half. And then like peak high school was like two hours a day. Okay. And where was your head when you're just practicing on your own? Like, where's um, this dissociation? How does that map on to doing the musical act? Um, in many respects, I was actually the most focused when I practiced. Everything else would melt away. And, um, you know, I was completely and utterly focused on whatever music I was working on. And, of course, the art of practicing in the beginning, it's not the art of practicing. You're just like, okay, I have these assignments that I have to do for next week. And I got to make sure that they're up to this tempo and whatever, whatever. Um, and there's really no rhyme or reason. You're just like, I have this much time and I have to do these things. Um, and, you know, sometimes my mental health would get involved and I would beat myself up. But eventually, as I kind of learned the art of practicing and being able to, you know, engaging meaningful repetitions and look at what I needed to learn and analyze, okay, here's the problem area. I'm going to break it down and, you know, I want to try and understand the artistic intent. What's the line telling me? Um, you know, once I kind of got more of those nuances, it was, it was a creative endeavor, but it was also very mechanical. Mm -hmm. And I just completely would get lost for those two hours. Hmm. What is the relationship uh, between teen you and the trumpet? Just the instrument, the object, act um in high school later on in high school um earlier on i you know i was a kid that played trumpet but i was more of an academic i did you know a lot of the science courses i was honors ap um i was also kind of fed up with the whole school thing because like the depression thing was going on too and i was like i'm tired of this and i asked my guidance counselors i'm like if i hypothetically got all of the courses done a year early would you let me walk and they were like, uh, we never had that happen before. But if you did that, I don't think we could stop you. <laughs> so I was like, heck yeah. And I basically made this big push. And my junior year, I could have walked at graduation. I could have graduated. I had all my credits. Um, Why don't you? So up until junior year, it was like this really big academic push. I was taking all the science courses. I was a straight A student. You know, I had my head in the books and I just happened to do band on the side. Okay. But then um, junior year, things kind of flipped on its head and I was getting kind of good at the trumpet thing. And as the depression was getting worse, it was one of the only things that would give me relief. Um, so I really sunk my teeth into that. I decided not to graduate another year early. Me, 16 years old, going off to college was not a good idea. Um, and so I kind of took a step back from things and um, kind of junior year is when I moved from the academic to the musician. And that's when I really shifted my focus junior, senior year to I am a musician. I am a trumpeter. I'm an instrumentalist. This is my identity. So I, w I wanted to ask when we were talking about religion earlier about uh, just how obsessive the um, self-judgment, thinking everything through what would Jesus do and just having that c conscience that pattern, that dogma, always informing you, always informing you. I'm wondering if that primed the ground. If 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 at one point you you took the uh, Christianity chip out and you put the trans chip in, if it was running mm -hmm. on the same circuits, basically, um, kind of maybe. 
Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, looking back, I jokingly say I hopped from one cult to another cult, um, just kind of like, and it was on two ends of the extreme. So I went from fundamentalist Christianity, anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-everything that's not them to, you know, trans ideology. You can be whatever you want, basically anti-straight, anti-cis, you know, biology be damned, all oh. that stuff. Anybody that's not us is wrong. Um, okay. So you did the anti thing. It wasn't for you. wasn't just about accepting an identity, accepting the rainbow. It was about this critical endeavor of queering the world, breaking down normativities, undermining. Um, at some point, yes, it became that within transition. It happened during my transition. And also while I was at the college that I was at, which was extremely liberal, Hmm. Um, which irked me at first, but then it kind of converted me a little bit. Oh, um, yeah. Um, well, I'll just say it. I was at Penn State for a year, so okay. Penn State, Maine, um, which certainly has its conservative pockets, but also it. You know, I'm in the School of Music. I'm in the College of Arts and Architecture. You have all all of the eclectic types there. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. And I I had intended to start out as stealth, but then my friends conveniently outed me that were from high school that were attending the school. Stealth uh, um, male. So yes, because okay. um, at the at that point, I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but at that point, I had transitioned far enough that I was passing in public. So I was like, okay, fresh new start, it's gonna be fine. And then like one girl that I knew from high school just like told everybody, Stacy, damn it. Yeah. Well, now she's non-binary. That's the plot twist. <laughs> she is yeah um so then i was like okay obviously i'm not like stealth i'm openly you know trans because i kind of have to be and then you know learning with other people that were starting to adopt you know parts of the lgbt for themselves like the one friend originally she was straight well maybe i'm bi you know that would be cool yeah i think i'm bi um you know, and maybe maybe I'm not exactly female because I don't fully identify with that. And more and more of my friends were doing that and more and more of my peers. Um, and, you know, we even had like a grad TA um, who is a uh, uh, master's in music um, and was like focusing on conducting and like music pedagogy. He was non-binary. And what? he like he was openly non-binary. And um, we had I, I don't think we had any professors that were openly LGBT, but definitely there was like a lot of representation and it increased over the year I was there. And after I left, it increased even more. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a rage or it was always there. And finally it gets to be out in the open. What does non-binary mm -hmm. mean for this guy? Um, non-binary, um, or are you asking just for that guy specifically? For that guy, cause it, is it? one thing or is it everybody so, gets to be their own nine nb um yeah everybody gets to be their own special thing it's basically you are neither stereotypically male or female my um appraisal of the situation was that he was just a stereotypically slightly effeminate gay man that was not happy with he him pronouns the only thing he did literally the only thing was say they them his name was luke but they them were his pronouns and that was it but he also didn't get super mad if he didn't use them. But he didn't make any other changes. None whatsoever. But, you know, he changed he to they, and he's non-binary right now. Okay. Okay. Mm. Um, it's hard not to make fun of non-binary. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. 
it's I mean, hard for me. Even the whole trans thing when I was doing it, I'm like, look, I know this is a hard sell to say that like, you know, someone has the brain of a man but trapped inside of a woman's body. I know it sounds crazy, okay? Part of me doesn't believe it, but like hear me out. That that was kind of how I approached it, but now I'm like it still sounds crazy. It still doesn't make sense. Well, teach their own, I guess. Um Yeah. Let's let's rewind um and get to get to college i do want to ask about why wokeness annoyed you and then you accepted it i want to hear like how it how it got you into its craw but uh, let's let's walk up to how you go from uh super academic to super musician to college and i guess transition Um, starts to happen before college yeah um, yeah, transition happened. It The process started between junior and senior year. So I'll start with junior year. So beginning of junior year, I was going to walk with the um, class of 2017. I was 16 years old. I was slated to go off to a private Christian college and do my three plus two biochem and be a medical researcher. That was the plan. Okay. Um, and around october november my mental health really started taking a downhill turn um it, i always had depression and anxiety and it was kind of lurking in the background and was kind it of seasonal? Low self-esteem would it would it go um, down it, in it, it would autumn? definitely get worse in the fall but it was always kind of there um but it really started going downhill um so around october early november actually i decided i was like you know what I'm not feeling this whole graduating early thing. Even if I have a really relaxed senior year, because I have all the credits I need this year, I'm not going to walk. And so I told them that and they were like, that's fine. Um, So then I kind of went back to being in my class, class of 2018, but I still had this heavy course load. And this was also around the time when I was coming to terms with um, my sexuality and what that meant being a Christian. Hmm. Um, So kind of, leading up to that i had realized that, like i was a girl and i was having crushes on girls and not guys and that I, I then i realized like what those crushes were and that that was the romantic attraction that you know the church was talking about and you know man shall not sleep with mankind as with womankind it is an abomination turned into gay people are an abomination and they are absolutely choosing this you're not born gay you're choosing to indulge in the sin and that um you must pre- repent or you will go to hell um, and I was closeted, completely closeted, um, and trying to figure all of this out. And then eventually I did come to terms with the fact that I was gay, completely gay, did not have any attraction to men whatsoever, um, completely attracted to women. And I tried so hard in those months to make it go away. I tried, I, I, I tried, you know, hating people, hating everybody, shutting everybody out and it didn't work. Mm. Um, and so I was coming to terms with that. And then like around like early November-ish, I was talking with my mom and I'm like, look, I, I know that this is what the church says and I'm sorry, but I think like I'm gay. I think that's something that I'm dealing with. And she goes, okay, that might be the case, but just to know you're never allowed to be in a relationship. You have to remain celibate. If this is the case, and I believe, she believed people could be born gay. She's like, I have no problem with that, but you know you can't be in a relationship, right? Hmm. Um, and then around late November, early December, I entered a secret relationship Ooh. Um, with a girl that I had met. Essentially, it was trauma bonding. We were both, you know, going back and forth about how shitty our childhood was yeah. um, and, you know, proximity and so on. Um, with and, you some know, snogging kind of on the side. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, but then like over Christmas break, my mom found out about it and I was already like having a lot of trouble mentally and that resulted in full-blown crisis. Mm -hmm. um, like I was already dealing with suicidal ideation on and off, um, which frankly I had been dealing with some degree of whether it was active or passive, mostly passive, which passive means like you could think, oh, if I got hit by a bus, I wouldn't be mad. It's not like I want to die. It's if something happened to me and I didn't wake up tomorrow, I wouldn't be mad. That's um, passive suicidal ideation. I've been dealing with some degree of that since the onset of puberty. So like nine, 10, hmm. but it wasn't like a daily occurrence until this point. And then, you know, it was getting worse because I had the Holy Spirit inside of me, you know, kind of churning my stomach that I was hiding this thing. I was keeping secrets. I was, you know, like... And the thing is, we weren't even doing anything. We were just talking. Like there was, there was no sexual hanky panky, nothing. Like it, we were just talking. Um, but you know, it's still like a sin of the flesh. I'm committing this big no no, this big evil. And then my mom found out, and it just blew up. Mm. It was just like it was an explosion. And finally, I was like, I I don't know if I can go on, and I'm afraid I'm going to do something now. And I was I I was like, you need to take me to the ER. Because I'm probably going to do something stupid if you don't. And I need to take a grippy sock vacation. Um, which translation means inpatient psych care. So uh, Christmas Eve, I went inpatient psych um, for two weeks. Yeah. A little town of Bethlehem. Yeah, I woke up Christmas morning, 6 a.m. And they, were, they came into my room and they were like, hi, we're here to take your blood. And I'm like, they did that at the ER. Why are you here? And they're like, well, you don't have to get up. We'll just do it. You just lay in the bed. Why do they um, need your blood for baby um, Jesus ceremony? I, I don't know. Okay. Um, I, I think they just need to do like rudimentary labs, like a complete yeah. blood count and all that stuff to make sure that I wasn't super off balance. I mean, like... Honestly, though, the Christmas in the ER was probably one of the better Christmas. I mean, not ER, sorry. I was at the inpatient facility. The Christmas at the facility was probably one of the better Christmases I had because we actually celebrated and I, like, got presents. And, you know, we had, like, the Christmas ham and so on, hmm. which we don't typically do. Um, and we didn't typically do after we moved here just because, like, we're just trying to, like, stay afloat. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, like I got my little goodie bag and I got like this little stuffed porcupine. It was actually kind of pleasant, you know, in spite of wanting to die. Um, hmm. But, you know, I spent um, two, I basically spent Christmas vacation and probably like an extra week in a combination of the inpatient program and then moving into intensive outpatient, um, which is basically like seven hours a day, five days a week for two weeks. Um, and you do some of your schoolwork there, but you also go through like intensive talk therapy and group therapy, um, with a bunch of other depressed kids. Um, mm. it's, it's a fun time. Was that and good then, for you? Um, I, I fell out of my depth because I, I kind of have, a, I was more aware of my issues than the other kids. Um, because I was, I was required to go there, but I also wanted to go there because I wanted to get better and I wanted to improve myself. So this wasn't as big of an issue, but every other kid was just fighting it. Mm. Um, and in terms of being able to like vocalize what our problems are and like why we feel like crap and you know what the source of our issues were i was able to say well i know that the source of my si and my feelings of like downness and hopelessness is because of low self-esteem because of x y and z that happened in my childhood i could pinpoint it easily and no one else could and the therapists were like i don't know what to do with that because i'm supposed to talk to the group um and then I came back to school and had to pretend like none of it happened and just get back to all my science 
classes and get back to all my music stuff. Were you good at masking? Um, well, it, it's interesting because I thought I wasn't. Um, but apparently when people did ask later on, they're like, you know, I'll, the teachers were really good. Um, they said that I was in the hospital. They didn't say where I was at. Um, but even later on, like I, you know, this is why I don't have a problem talking about this stuff now. Cause like ever since I've been 16, I've been trying to break down these stigma walls. Um, later on, people are like, so what were you in the hospital for? And I said, oh, I was in the hospital cause I was suicidal. And they were like, What? Like you were what? And I was like, oh yeah, I was severely depressed. And I'm still severely depressed. And they're like, we couldn't tell. Teachers were shocked. Everybody was shocked. They're like, we couldn't tell. Hmm. Um, hmm. And then kind of leading into that January, February, I got really big into the music stuff because for me, it was, again, one of the few things that I didn't feel pain while doing and everything kind of just melted around me. And so... um Believe it or not, there's uh, competitive music playing. Like, you know how there's, like, sports where you can do, like, um, competitions between, like, different yeah, schools. Yeah, rap battles. Um, kind of. But with trumpets. Um, well, it, it was, like, with different groups. So, essentially, like, you know, you have, like, district sports championships and then regional and then, like, state championships. And then they go to the all-eastern level and all those different rankings. Well, there that exists for music. Um in middle and high school so you can audition for band or orchestra um as a trumpet player but then they also have jazz band and they have choir and they have like different niche groups and so on um so that year previously i had done district band um and i had done like moderately well and then at each festival you re-audition again um to um go to the next group which is like a con a combination of districts into one region and then a combination of regions into one state um my junior year i ended up making it to the national level because i just like judged? sold my soul how, how they um, judged? blind audition but when when they fight against each other in the runoffs like oh, is it okay. a subjective so, like or are these um, pieces of music very technical um so usually there's a technical piece and then there's a lyrical piece um we have an idea of what the music is like um when you're auditioning for like the first big audition districts um you're given the repertoire ahead of time so usually it's either like one piece with multiple movements or like different sections or it's two pieces um one's technical one's lyrical and um you know that they're going to pull something from that and usually it's like a certain phrase or like a certain groups of phrases it's not the whole piece but you have to know the whole piece because you don't find out until two hours before you're playing the pe like the audition what they're going to pull and then for regionals they might give you an excerpt but then you're given all these songs so like five or six pieces that you know you're coming together as a band to play um, for like a three-day festival and um, you know you are expected to be able to play anything from those five or six pieces um, in a blind audition and so that would be like three teachers backs turned to you they have um, grading criteria that they're looking for and they're looking at the excerpt while you're playing it and people file in one after the other and play their excerpts um exciting uh, stressful, like horrible. Well, I hated it. You I, hated it, it but you went all the I way hated, to the nationals. I I hated the audition process because it was extremely nerve wracking yeah, for me. I bet. Um, I you already I had such an intense judge on the inside, and you're, you're subjecting yourself to very intense judge uh, on the yeah, inside. Yeah. Um, 
And it's interesting because the only reason I think the only reason I did so well was because of where I was coming from in, you know, December, January being so low that I kind of just like, oh, screw it. Like nothing matters. I'm just going to go in and have a good time and just like play my heart out. And ironically, when I don't care is when I play the best. (laughs) So that's how I was able to advance so quickly. So I made it from districts to regionals to state. Um, And then from state to nationals, it's a video audition. So I'm like, great, I can do however many takes I want. I can choose what I submit. Um, And then from there, it was kind of just send it off into the void. And then a few months later, it was like, congrats, you're going to Disney World. Literally, it was in Disney World. The National Convention was in Disney World. What happened there? Um, So that was basically a collection. They did band, orchestra, chorus, jazz vocals, and jazz band. Um, I also think they did guitar ensemble, but I'm not sure what the audition process looked like for that. Um, Essentially, hundreds upon hundreds of kids um, from across the country, all 50 states, coming together, and you have three days, and this music that was shipped out in advance, um, you get together for three days to practice like an hour-long program or an hour-and-a-half-long program, depending on what group you were in, and then you perform. Was it fun? Um, it was interesting because, um, when that happened, um, I was kind of going through like the social transition process. So okay. I should probably back up because okay. that okay. happened during my senior Okay. Year. So, so like, I was while you're going through this really intensive music stuff, your, your transition mentation starts to happen and then you go through the steps. Um, so May was when I did States and, um, like late april early may was when i was starting to kind of figure out more parts of the lgbt community like what the b in the lgbt was and then like kind of once i got through states and like i was like okay that's it for a while because it's this big grind essentially like february you have one festival late march early april you have a second festival and then may you have your third festival and they're all separate programs Normally what you would take a semester to prepare for in school, like in concert band, you have to do within a few weeks. Um, And it's just like, you know, one after the other. So I was like, I don't have time to think about anything else, pushing on the back burner. But then after that, like early mid-May, I was figuring out what the T in LGBT meant. And then, you know, I was really grappling with that. And then um, in June, I was pretty sure that that was what was wrong with me. Um, based on the videos and, you know, seeing like what transition looked like. I'm like, Hey, I, you know, I think of a guy and I, I came out to my mom and she's like, that's crazy. You sound crazy. Um, but then she kind of reevaluated things and was like, okay, trans people exist. I recognize that. I had a reaction there. Um, we're not going to make the call on this because I, I don't know if this is true or not, but let's go to a professional that has training and expertise in transgender medicine, behavioral health, and let them make the call. But in the meantime, it was like, okay, fine. You can cut your hair and you can shop in the boys section. Cause I wasn't allowed to do that up to that point. Um, and you know, I was going by a new name, which was my initials KC um, for my original name. And I, I tried to get people to use the pronouns, but teachers were like, no, we're not going to, um, which was fine. I, I respected that. I'm like, okay, you're using the new name. That's fine. Um, 
but you know, I was starting to do that social transition over the summer and then leading into the fall. And w- when is the uh, Disney World uh, show? Um, off? Disney World was November of okay. um, senior year. So, like, I had come out in June, late June began the social transition, and then in November, I'm, you know, down in Disney World while it's snowing and flurrying up at north. Hmm. Nice 70 degree weather. Hmm. What kind of gender specialist did you get connected with? And how was that care? Um, well, I've named the names already, so I'll just name them now. So um, we went to the Children's Hospital Philadelphia's Pediatric Gender Clinic um, because that's what my mom researched. Originally, she reached out to Johns Hopkins Gender Clinic, a Pediatric Gender Clinic, and there was like an over-year-long wait list. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, my God, my kid is going to melt down before then. You know, mm-hmm. I would like to see somebody sooner rather than later. Um, and then she found she was uh, she told me recently that she was actually looking at Boston Children's Hospital even because she was familiar with the area. She's like, if we have to go up there to get answers, I don't care. Um, but then found out that CHOP had a program. And yes, that's unfortunate that the name is CHOP, Children's Ho- C-H-O-P, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They call it CHOP. They've called it CHOP. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of unfortunate. Better than Chaz, I guess, but that, that's a reference to 2020 uh, Seattle uh, yeah. politics. But yeah. Um, so um, kind of sent out an email there i think july-ish well she made contact i was and she's feeling under pressure too she's feeling like this is something immediate my child is on the brink of suicide we have to get this figured out yes i was teetering on suicide um on and off with varying degrees of severity this entire time okay um and certainly she wasn't under the influence like in the July, August area of, oh my God, the 40% chance of committing suicide. Like I have to act now, but she was like, my kid's struggling. We need to get help. Maybe this is the next thing. And I would like to have a trained clinician and professional that's researched this, make that call and not just, you know, go to Joe Schmo because Joe Schmo will not know how to handle this. And we discovered that because no therapist in the area would take on the case. They're like, we don't have expertise in that. We're not, no. Uh -uh. Um, So the first appointment was September um, with uh, one of the co-founders of the um, program, Dr. Linda Hawkins. Um, I don't know what her PhD is in, but I know she's an LPC, um, licensed professional counselor. Um, And she's done research and so on in uh, pediatric gender transition and gender dysphoria and all that stuff. Um, That was in Philadelphia. And I think that was, it was like a total of two hours, but it was an hour with me. And then like half an hour with mom and then like another 20 to 30 minutes with the both of us kind of explaining the game plan. Second appointment was in October. Um, That was in Harrisburg because um, that was closer to me and she was coming to the area and it was just going to be easier. That appointment was longer than expected. But after that, I had my letter. I had my referral letter to get hormones. Hormones. Mm -hmm. You, You said game plan at the first uh, um, that was kind session. of how many more appointments she expected we would need to do, um, for her to feel comfortable, um, either writing the referral letter and giving the diagnosis of gender dysphoria or not. Hmm. She kind of expected that it would take two to three more appointments after the initial first, um, for her to get through all of the questions and do all of the questioning that she needed to do to investigate the different options of whether it's gender dysphoria or something else, it, it was going to take more time to 
for her to feel that she can make the right clinical judgment. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion with her that you were trans. Um, define foregone. Like, uh, she, sorry, she, free, free phrase that. There, there was the possibility that you were not going, she was not going to refer you down a trans medical path. Um, the way that she painted it was not everybody that walks into the clinic walks out with a referral letter. Okay. She did not specifically say in my case. Yeah. Um, she was saying, you know, specifically, this is how long the process takes me to, you know, make that conclusion. But also, like, there there have been patients that walk out and we do not refer them for medical transition. Okay. But um, you would already decided to social transition. Correct. For a few months by then. Yes. Um, I, I mean, at that point, it was literally just me running around with a haircut, wearing plaid, and going by Casey instead of my birth name. Binder? Um, people still used... Um, yes, I did wear a binder. Okay. No, that's fine. Um, I also wasn't very large-chested either, so it wasn't terrible. Did that affect your trumpeteering? Trumpeting? <laughs> um, I did marching band for the first time um, over that summer, and I did exactly what everything tells you not to do, and I bound for longer than eight hours, and I bound during strenuous activities. So... Running around on a field while playing a um, an instrument that requires a lot of air, would not recommend. Did it feel good or no, not? No, no, it didn't. Were you achy, breaky uh, back? Um, honestly, it wasn't achy. Um, like that wasn't the issue. It was just like the breathing that was an issue. Oh no! Okay. You know, if you're running around and then you're also like playing you're trying to like blow air into an instrument that requires a lot of air while yeah. running while yeah. wearing a compression vest yes i no not, offense not my proudest moment kids can be idiots so. it's i yeah this that's one of my not so brightest moments yeah <laughs> okay so from your point of view if you didn't get the referral letter would you have just gone on and done it yourself did you already investigate other options where you or were, um, you, were would you have been okay with somebody convincing you that you're not uh that medical transition is not the proper path for you um if i had gone through enough psychotherapy to try and address the root issues of you know what i can look back in retrospect and say why i transitioned which was a combination of you know um the sexual trauma uh religious ideology that basically was saying i wasn't you know i, I didn't want to be like a straight woman and get married in my early 20s and have kids and i wasn't doing the whole women thing correct um and then just being gay as well all of that kind of conflict like you know combined together and to me thinking, well, here's my way out. This could make me more normal. Instead of being a gay woman, I could be a straight man. Um, but, you know, if I had actually like sat with a therapist and worked through all of that, because it wasn't until years later, you know, in my transition that I had worked through that in therapy, except I, I hadn't connected the dots yet that that's why I transitioned. It was just that was the root problems that were causing a lot of my issues. Um had I had that addressed, I wouldn't have done this. Okay. Um, so you get to college. Mm -hmm. you, you're on T. The T. Was that awesome? You're like, um, yeah, I'm a juicer now. You're running around, like, punching through walls, bagging all the chicks. How did it affect you? Um, well, it, 
I started in January of my senior year. And it's interesting because people say, oh, you're lying about this. Um, my voice dropped within the first two days. Like, really? It, it cracked. Yeah. I, I had a very quick reaction hmm. um, to the testosterone. Um, and I was started on a very low dose and I was tapered up over the course of 10 months. But I reacted fairly quickly to it. Um, and by like April, May, my voice was completely different. I mean, it was probably, it wasn't nearly as deep as this. And in fact, once I hit the 10 month mark and I did hit full dose, it just dropped. Oh. I mean, I'm not saying I have a super deep voice, but it was like, it's, I, I've heard higher cis male voices than this. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting because I reacted quickly, but also I continued to have changes for a long time, which is pretty cool because, you know, your body's changing in a way that you think is a good way. And also testosterone, it makes you stronger. You know, you get the broader shoulders. I was lifting in the gym. And of course, to see all your numbers just skyrocket out of nowhere, it's great. Yeah. And you feel great and you have more energy. And, you know, it's, you know, I could just be a guy and you know, I can do guy things now. And I look like a guy and I sound like a guy. And it's just, just a lovely thing. So, I mean, yeah, there's a degree of enjoyment in it. Yeah. What about um, processing emotions? Did your emotional um, bandwidth uh, intensify and shrink? Because I've heard that uh, for females going on testosterone, it can happen that they can't cry anymore and they get incredibly angry and incredibly horny. Like they're, they, they kind of like they're. Yeah. Um, so let's see. You said um, they can't cry anymore. They get incredibly angry and incredibly horny. Um, all three of those things happened. Um, the anger wasn't as big of an issue. Um, I, I, you know, in the first few months it was kind of, but then I learned to manage it. Hmm. Um, also cause I was in therapy too. I was also like really angry pre T like I would have like spouts of anger. Hmm. Um, well, well, how would you process that? Would you like go and shave a bar of soap into a perfect orb or how would you process anger? Um, usually I would like scream into a pillow or something or oh. just like, okay. I, I would like punch something, not a wall. I never punched walls, but like no I walls. was, you know plushy um, things yeah not um, cats either no no okay i um, just want to get that on the record you know i i don't um i don't threaten animals um trying to think but you know there there are some anger issues um the not being able to cry thing i cried every single day usually multiple times a day pretty really as I progressed on the yes um i was a big crier cried at everything um, as I progressed on the testosterone, that decreased to virtually zero. Was that okay? Um, um, no, because I, there was there's points where I wanted to cry, but the tears wouldn't come out. Yeah. Like I physically could not produce the tears. Yeah. And, and then, then you the just get angry. Thing, um, oh no, I wouldn't get angry because okay. of that. I just it kind of. Um, Instead of having in like an outward sad reaction, it kind of just internalized and I became mopey. Hmm. Um, you know, okay. I, I wouldn't like visibly get upset because the tears weren't coming. Because um, I would try and hide it until the tears came out and my face became splotchy. And then, you know, the floodgates open. I can't hide anymore. I'm just having a breakdown in public now. Um, but when that physically isn't happening, it was easier for me to hide. But then I just ended up internalizing it more. Okay. Um. So let's see the crying, the anger, and then the horniness. Um, when, yeah, I had no idea what to do with that. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. It just. I'm sorry. 
It's okay. I <laughs> now you know I, what I, it's I like to be a 13-year-old boy. I know. It's horrible. It's <laughs> horrible. And that's why, you know, I, I talked with Shape about this, but in terms of, like, testosterone and, like, men or, you know, people on testosterone with, like, those male levels and trying to deal with libido and so on. And, you know, like people rag on them saying like, oh, it's not that bad. And you just need to control yourself. No, you don't understand when you're on, like when your testosterone levels are like 700 nanograms per deciliter level all the time, like it, it, you know, you gotta, you have to blow off steam. You gotta blow off steam. Like it's there. And if you don't, like you're going to explode. I have no idea what to do with that. Hmm. Frankly, I'm coming off of testosterone. I'm thankful that's gone. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm I'm only like almost three weeks off, but like it's a noticeable difference. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, because oh, it yeah. was. I mean, that was like a persistent symptom. It wasn't <laughs> as bad as time went on, but like yeah. it was. Oh, it was. I I'm just like really again we're dealing with this. <laughs> you gotta do what you need to do and then move on, and it happens again, and you're like, I, I'm just trying to go to sleep, man. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, yeah, I know. Again, it's they talk about like the idealized version of being like a teen boy and so on, but they don't talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, did so I, I'm sure it's, it's kind of difficult to tease it all apart. But if you're going on this massive dose of well, if you're going on an exogenous hormone, mm -hmm. you can be removed from your problems of depression, anxiety. But where are where what's your relationship? to those as you begin to transition anxiety depression suicidality panic attacks um for a while i tried to push them away because i thought oh well you know like things are changing and they're going to continue to change and this is going to be the thing that fixes all my problems right you know that i was told by the clinic that my depression and anxiety would go away or become a lot more manageable if i transitioned because that was the root issue the other thing too is that this um the lpc that was evaluating me knew about my past trauma she knew my trauma history um she knew what the current psychological state was she knew about the inpatient stay she knew about the sexuality she knew about all of that um but still it was the determination that depression and anxiety was predominantly caused by the gender dysphoria and that transitioning would alleviate that so um it took a couple of years on hormones for everything to kind of level out um, you know, for the changes to kind of stop coming as quickly and as noticeably. Um, but in that time period, I was able to kind of push the depression and anxiety away, um, at least for the root causes. Of course, when I was away at college for that one year, I ended up having another not so great male um, figure in my life, um, the trumpet professor who uh, let's just say he was not liked by anybody and he did not like anybody. He made it a point to make every one of us break down in the studio at least once a semester. It happened like clockwork. Um, and like the guy from it, Whiplash, that movie Whiplash. Uh, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, he wouldn't. Yeah, he wouldn't throw chairs, but essentially he would do what he needed to do to make you play well. And I was one of his better students, so he really. You know, it, again, Terrence Fletcher is a pretty good representation. And that's a stereotype within the music community is, you know, having the abusive stickler teacher, but they bring out the best in their students. 
you know, like the worst teachers produce the best students, but at what cost, you know, and like you joke about being traumatized by lessons, but it was, it's a very real thing. Um, You know, so obviously there's a lot of depression that was going on with that because I'm being told that I'm like this spineless wimp and that I, you know, like middle scores play better than me. And why the hell did I accept you in my studio? If you, you know, you said you practiced, but if you really practiced, you'd be able to play this thing perfectly. And, um, you know, all of this stuff. And, you know, I can play this better than you. And I'm thinking, well, no shit, dude, you're the professor. Of course you can play it better than me. I'm here to learn. Um, it was, you know, I, I felt depression from that, but I kind of just like put it away. And it certainly, it was acute at that time, but there was also depression from like the self-worth and, you know, kind of the lack of identity of self um, and like self-concept, but I was just pushing it away. Cause I'm like, you know what, like mm-hmm. the, the changes from hormones haven't fully happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I just need to wait a little longer. What and about uh, maybe if I get out of this stressful situation, you know, everything will settle and it'll all be fine. Romance? Get a girlfriend? No. No? No. Close friends? No. Best friends? Um, I, I had some close friends. Um, my closest friend um, was AJ. He was a TA in the studio. Um, that that was kind of awkward because the, it it kind of, he started to try and progress it a little further. Um, but he's also 10 years older than me. So, well, I was 17 when it started. So oh, okay. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah I was no, 17, 18. So uh, 27, 28, it was like, uh. um, but, you know, we also were at similar playing levels and, you know, we would bounce ideas off of each other. It was, you know, an intellectual yeah. friendship, um, you know, yeah. we ended up playing a lot of the same parts. Like he would play first trumpet, I would play sec- second trumpet, and then there'd be other songs where I'd play first trumpet and he'd play second trumpet. Um, so, you know, we, it, we were colleagues in that sense. And that's why we spent a lot of time together. And there were other people in the studio that I spent time with. And then a friend from high school, who's one of the smartest people I've ever met, um, named Sam and his girlfriend that, you know, we would spend time together and just kind of um, making philosophical statements about life and um, looking at the world and looking at the studio and occasionally just kind of sitting in a circle and going, wow, we're all screwed. And then just, you know, going about our day. Um, but generally speaking, it was, um, few and far between all platonic, no romantic. And when did it come to be the case that you couldn't suppress the other issues or that transition wasn't the great umbrella and be all end all the Christ of your life? Um, I did a pretty good job of suppressing it for a few years because I thought that the issue was, okay, I'm in music school and it traumatized me and I left because I was traumatized. And also, um, because of my position in the school, I was in a lot of graduate ensembles and got to talk with a lot of grad students that, um, were out in the real world. They had their bachelor's degrees. They were coming back for their master's, um, and, you know, a lot of them had even gone to like conservatories in these fancy music schools. And now they're at like, you know, Penn State of all places to get their master in music. And I hear that it's because you can't get a job out in the real world. And they're trying to get their masters at a place where it's good enough and that they can get it paid for so they can teach so they can have some hopes of making a living. Mm-hmm. But they can't string together jobs. No one's winning gigs. The gig economy is extremely tight. Um, and it was a lot worse than I thought. And I'm like, okay. I'm traumatized. I'm completely burnt out. And I'm not even sure I could get a job at all. Like not like not even one job, like any job period upon graduation. This is a waste of time. Like I need to get out now. Um, so I left and this, this was all pre COVID too. 
and now like so many orchestras have shut down the market is just so much worse uh, now than it was pre-covid yeah. and it was already bad so I 100% don't regret my decision, but I thought, okay, it was because I was, you know, in music school and that didn't work out. I just need to find my major. And so I was trying different things out. And then um, I was a nursing major and I tried nursing school and I thought, great, this is going to solve my problems. The depression and anxiety was still an issue. Wait, why, why would nursing, uh, is there something about bedpans that bring you uh, just um, great emotional relief? Well, no, I thought I was trying to find identity in something. And okay. I had thought, well, like, you know, I did my part with the trans thing. I'm still trans. Like, I'm a guy, um, you know, but I still don't know what to do with myself. I don't know who I am. And so my problem was I was always trying to find identity in something else besides being myself. So, like, instead of being me, I would be a musician or a trans guy or, in this case, a nurse. You know, I'm helping people. This is my identity. I, my career is my identity. Hmm. And then, you know, I made it a year through nursing school and then my health kind of just went downhill because of unrelated issues um, and I had to withdraw. And then even now, like recently, uh, well, this was in the past year that I was in nursing school. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, this is my passion. I'm helping people and, you know, I'm using my mind and it's challenging, um, but then not being able to physically do it. And then that kind of limited what I could do career-wise and then looking into the helping fields, um, but then kind of coming to the conclusion as I'm studying all of these things, I, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm trying to look outside of myself to figure out who I am. And that hasn't worked with the career thing. So maybe I need to start looking internally. Um, so then I'm thinking, okay, well, what other things have I been trying to put extra, like what other external things have I put, been putting value on this entire time? And I was like, okay, well, I did it with music. I did it with academics. I did it with nursing. I was going to do it with social work. Um, you know, what else is there? And I was like, well, you know, you're a trans guy. That was the trans thing, right? Um, and also looking at like the detransitioners and all that stuff and um, hmm. what was happening and like viewing it from a medical malpractice thing, but then realizing that, you know, being trans was also just another external identity that I was trying to latch onto to explain who I was which is an epiphany that happened within the past month or so. It's a, it's a double-edged sword to realize that all these external things aren't the answer. And then you're like, well, I have to, I have to be me. <laughs> it's just me in the world. Yeah. There's no shell that's going to contain me or every shell's contorting me in a way that's not me. Mm -hmm. And there, it's interesting because there was one journal that kind of solidified this way of thinking that I did look back in, um, that I was talking about how I was a musician. I was destined to be a musician. I am not myself. I'm the music that I play. Like, I, I, I do not exist outside of the work that I do, and that's all that matters. Yeah. 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 So it I was mean, my complete abandonment of self based on what I was able to do. Yeah. And who, how I was portrayed or, you know, how I was viewed. Yeah, I, I don't, I, from my point of view, like, I, at some point I just realized that I don't really have a self. It was just part of my maturation that, like, I, I, I have feelings that are inside of me, drives, wants, and then there's the world and its demands and then other people and then what they do, right? So, like, the, 
the ego or the self is just kind of like this, uh, this really thin film of oil on the pond between what's inside of me and what's outside of me. It's, it's nothing really in and of itself, but it's a, it's a reaction between mm. what's inside and outside. But, um, I don't know. I just the the concept of that your generation has been either fed or adopted about identity. It it's re, it's very salient. It makes a lot of sense. I understand why it is a thing, but at the same time, I've done so much thinking about it that it's just like, well, what is this thing? What is this thing that we're, that you guys are chasing that I was chasing too earlier on in my life? Um, yeah, um, and it's interesting because. Um, I've talked um, with Isaac, Isaac Uncooked. I believe you had him on your channel at one point. Um, mm. And I um, chatted with him a little bit on the Discord because he made a video about my original video that mm. went viral. Um, and then, like, when I made, like, the detransitioning video, he essentially, like, sent his subscribers to my channel. Um, but he, he made a comment that kind of sparked something, um, like, a thought process in my head. Because I said, you know, I didn't feel male. I've never felt male. I don't know what I feel like. And he said, well, that's your mistake. You, you don't have a male or female soul. You just, you are. You are whatever you are. But you don't, no one feels male or female. They just are. There's no feeling to it. And I was searching, you know, to act based on a feeling. But that, you know, I, I could never really dictate what that was. Well, maybe it's because there is no feeling to it. It just is. Mm -hmm. But there is this desperate attempt. And I agree by my generation. And I, it would be interesting to understand why our generation did this um, to be able to put a name to that, to be able to identify with something so strongly and why it's taken this direction. I would really like to know why Gen Z decided to screw things up like this. <laughs> Come on, I, Gen Z, get it together. I'm sure my generation uh, laid the groundwork for this. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the ideas that came out of the academy that have been boiling there for the last, I guess, 60 years. But deconstructing all these different identities. And at the same time of... Uh, at the same time... As they're deconstructing these identities, they're making identities the only sacred reality that there is. Everything's discourse except for this sacred identity that's tied somehow usually to oppression or to, to a negative value. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It also doesn't help that um, this fall I was in a sociology course until I got to a point where I was just mentally like done and had to drop my two courses. But in the sociology course... Um, talking about um, societal perception, I, I realized that there's a lot of parallels between the concept of symbolic interactionism and um, trans ideology and kind of gender ideology in general. Um, so What's symbolic I, I reactionism? What, what is that? Symbolic interactionism. Okay. So there's three major theories of sociology, basically framing how society works, um, functionalism, conflict theory, and symbolic interactionism short version um functionalism society is like an um, a well-oiled machine and it has all these different parts that are divided and they're kind of like neatly their own little things and they all work together to make the society function and whatever happens is meant to happen good or bad conflict theory um strife and conflict is created by scarcity of resources and inequality is created because some people have access to resources more so than others. Hmm. Um, and that this is unnecessary and should be avoided at all costs. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like where Marxism comes yeah. in a little yeah. bit. Um, and then symbolic interactionism is um, more viewed at the individual level that society is what 
um, society is determined um, by the individuals creating it. So um, nothing is really set in stone. Each individual group um, or each individual like microcosm of people are able to determine reality and society um, based on what they say and do. Hmm. It's um, like this emergent property, this emanation. Yes, and, yeah. yeah, and specifically, um, there's a theory called dramaturgy, which is um, people possess roles in society, um, and the only way that they can validly possess those roles is if they perform them in a convincing enough way. Yeah. So it, you know, if you take that with trans ideology, well, you know, you can, if you are perceived as a man, like if you do things to be perceived as a man, it makes you a man. If you do things to be perceived as a woman and you're perceived as a woman, it makes you a woman because you are as good as the performance that you give for the thing that you say you are. Yeah. And then the NBs come along and say, look at me. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't have anything for that. Oh, sorry. Um, but also, it's interesting because ethnomethodology um, is the concept. Yeah, I know these are big words. Um, <laughs> ethnomethodology. That's got a I don't nice, like, crispy right. sound to it, though. I know. It sounds fancier than it is. Okay. Basically, um, there are certain spoken and some unspoken societal roles and um, kind of guidelines that you have to follow that people are usually unaware of. But the way to become aware of them is somebody purposefully breaks the rules. And then all hell breaks loose hmm. because somebody's broken the peace, you know, like somebody's stepped out of line yeah. purposefully. Yeah. Whether people realize it's purposefully or not, it's realizing that reaction, that visceral reaction to um, disorder or things not meeting the norm that brings awareness to the fact that those norms exist, which in some respects, you could say that video was a perfect demonstration of that. Did you, so there's this video of you, you're sitting in a car in a parking lot, maybe? Like mm -hmm. Bed Bath and Beyond's behind you. I can't remember the store. Maybe um, like it was actually a Great Clips. Great Clips. Okay. Yeah, I had just come out of a haircut because my hair was like three or four. Oh, this isn't like years. a TikTok factory. No. Okay. I know. I I hate to break it to you, but I was actually in my car. I had just gotten out of my haircut. Um, I buzzed my head because the hairline the the hairline recession was bothering me, and I was tired of people telling me that like just come off hormones and like you know, your body is just going to magically revert back and like you could be a woman in society. And I was, I, I made the video out of spite being like, no, look at me. Like realistically speaking, am I, am I going to, you know, go back to looking like I was before? No. Cause I've been on this stuff for almost five years. Like realistically, unless, you know, magically my hair decided to grow back or I got, you know, surgery or whatever. Like, I mean, you know, it's, this is, this is not coming back. Um, this is reality for me. And, um, you know, in, in some respects, I purposefully, whether I realized it or not, broke the rules within the trans community. Cause I didn't, I didn't outwardly say I was detransitioning yet. Um, and even now I'm medically detransitioning, but I don't know what that's going to look like socially. Um, like socially right now, all my documents, everything still says male. I still go about my life as if I am a man, um, in greater society. Um, but you know, as a trans person saying, you know, this is what happens when you're five years on hormones and you have these side effects, no one talks about. And, you know, look at my thread. If I could have gone back and not made this decision, I would have, wouldn't have, that goes against the narrative that goes against the whole, you know, less than 1% detransition or regret rate 
and all of that stuff. I purposefully hmm. broke the rules and all hell broke loose. Hmm. So when did you start to investigate detransitioners? Probably like late September, early October. It well, was literally right before that video. Well, what caused you to be interested in that? Um, I think it was because I was following Buck Angel and Blair White on Instagram, and I saw that they were affiliated with Gays Against Groomers and Trans Against Groomers. And that was where I was starting to see like this detransition thing was actually a big deal. Hmm. Um, and for me, from my background, um, going through the behavioral health system and also having the nursing school um, experience, it was, okay, these people have comorbidities. They have differential diagnoses that were ignored. They were misdiagnosed and received medical treatment that ended up being harmful and they didn't need. They got unnecessary surgeries. Like this is, you know, a standards of care issue. This is um, a patient care issue at least in my head at the time, and at least in the pediatric population, like this is unethical, it needs to stop. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of where I was coming from and learning more about these stories and listening to them um, was what led me to the current conclusion now. Of What's this conclusion? Um, that I really didn't make the right decision because um, I, I wasn't, sorry, I'm, my brain is like starting to short circuit. Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's fine, um, it's fine. We'll wrap up soon. Yeah. Um, like I had always figured that like, if I could have just been fine with being cis, I would have, but I didn't actively regret transitioning because I didn't, I didn't let myself think about it until I was looking at these stories and reading the similarities and reading all of, you know, the things that their clinicians potentially missed. Um, mm. especially like, you know, the sexual trauma, um, you know, the discomfort around their bodies, eating disorders was also another big thing. Um, neurodiversity, whether it was ADHD or autism and having that hyper-focus, like it ticked all of these boxes. And then it was like, wait, wait, hold on a second. This is, this is happening with me too. And then it turned from a, this is, you know, medical malpractice. This is, you know, misdiagnosing people and giving them unneeded treatments to, holy crap, this happened to me. You're at a very particular point in time in mm -hmm. this transition and life keeps on. I'm, I'm going to break it to you now, kid. Life's just a continual transition, but right now yeah, you're at a very early Ugh. breaking point with this. Um, I'm curious, but I think it's actually a conversation for six or eight months from now mm -hmm. to, to, to get a view on your emotional state, on the regret the anger, like there's a lot of process and maybe you don't have to feel angry. Maybe you don't really feel regret. Maybe you're laissez-faire or say uh, la vie or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm wondering like, is, is it like the, the point in the movie uh, where, where uh, I don't know, I guess the stupidest thing that comes to mind is that uh, in night Shyamalama, Ding Dong movie with Bruce Willis where he realizes he's dead, right? You know, like there's this terrible realization. Oh yeah, so, it's that so, epiphany. So yeah, so how 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 does it feel, or how did it feel for all those things to come down and say, wait, oh, I've been looking at the world completely differently. How do you process um, that? It took a few days, really, for me to process it, and then when it, like, I, you know, I kind of intellectually thought through things, but I didn't let myself emotionally process it. Which I'm very good at. I'm very good at trying to 
suppress the emotional side and just kind of blunt force my way through it intellectually because it's less painful that way. Um, but that doesn't really help me process anything. But then when the emotional side did hit and I realized, you know, I, I realized kind of the consequences of what I had done that like, oh crap, you know, if I did have this deep yearning desire to live again as you know, a woman as I would have been if I hadn't transitioned. Yeah. I can't do that. That's gone. Um, and I actively destroyed something I had that I could have just perfectly left alone. Yeah. Um, and there was, I mean, I still deal with a lot of anger with that. Um, yesterday I was rage tweeting. Um, the full moon didn't help. Um, I saw, I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. The election I was, and then the full moon. You're just right yeah, well, raining fire down upon Twitter. Yeah, and people are like, are you okay? And I'm just like, hey, hey. Um, you know, and I've had a couple times like that, but, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm still going through the grieving process and all the different cycles. Yeah. Um, hmm. But I also, you know, it might change six to eight months from now because especially like with the testosterone being off of it, depending on what my body does between now and then, depending on what happens with mental health treatment, there might be med changes. There's a lot of factors that could play into it. Yeah, and hopefully time will help. Maybe. <laughs> well, I, what was your youth pastor's name? Uh, Caleb. Caleb, you're covered. I mean, there's irreversible things with mm -hmm. how your body's changed, but your life and that which caused and continues to cause life. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about mm -hmm. the creative force. Mm -hmm. cover has excess amount of coverage for forgiveness growth and the conversion of you into a renewed meaningful being like that's that you know transformation is always going to happen but also that that is always there i just want to tell you that um if you had any doubts or if that even uh rings a bell for you um, well, no, that's one of the things that I deal with because I have this irrational idea that I am hellbound for my decisions, which I know is not based off of anything that my mom's told me or anything like that. It's just it's a reoccurring theme in my head that I'm working through, even though I haven't been to church for years and I don't consider myself actively religious. Um, but I mean, it, it does mean something to hear that I am forgiven from somebody else. Uh so this is late for both of us. Two hour mark now. Where can people I'm find so you? Sorry. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I want to have you on again. I, I want to keep on talking, but um, just for audience sake and for the sake of uh, bathroom breaks, all that biology stuff that we still have to deal with. Oh, yeah, really? Right. Um, where can people find you? Um, and what are you producing? What do you want to go forward producing with? What do, what do you see your path forward? Um, so first of all, where people can find me, I am on Twitter and, um, YouTube primarily, um, Casey Miller, one, two, two, five, um, is my handle on both of those places. It's just Casey Miller on YouTube. I also have an Instagram, same username, but I just post pictures cause I like to take pictures. It's mm -hmm. nothing related to, um, like what I talk about and so on. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what exactly I want to put out into the world. Um, there are people that are very much, they kind of have their shtick and they have like their narrative and they know who they want to talk to and 
you know, they want to make their message as simple and concise as possible for as many people to digest as quickly as possible. And, you know, they want to instigate change and all of that stuff. Um, you're not going to see me giving any speeches anywhere. Um, that's not my thing. I think what I want to talk about is, you know, some of the societal factors and some of the things and quirks about mental illness that kind of got ignored in the evaluation process. Um, and talking about how trying to find identity outside of yourself, trying to put like your sense of self into something else. It, it could take many other forms, but in this case, it took the form of transition mm. can lead to some bad results in this case, you know, double mastectomy, permanent changes from testosterone, um, and kind of just talking through my journey through that. Um, from there, after I tell that story, I don't know, I'll figure it out, but so far people are listening. Yeah. How do I don't you know why, but they are. Where, where's your video stream? What, what's your app of choice? Um, just for... on YouTube. Okay. You do YouTube. Yeah. I just post videos that I record either out somewhere or in my car, just hmm. rambling. Mm-hmm. Do you have do you have a dog or horses? Um, I have cats. Cats. Do yes, you ever ride them around while you're talking on your? Uh, do they have like pull a sleigh and you, you talk in your video? Um, they kind of do what they want yeah. and they don't really act like in my best interest necessarily. What they do what they want. They do it, well, like they they don't they they just you they expect to them to they, act in your. You know what? They're not even cuddly. They won't even let me hold oh. them. Like they're not lap cats. I mean, oh. they're rescues. They're a lot better than oh, they used okay. to be. And yeah. they were, you know, difficult cases. Um, no one else would adopt them because, like, they would just run and hide. You're a fan of they act- damaged goods, aren't you? Yes, I am. Um, um, but yeah, both of them, they just act like they own the place until the doorbell rings and then they run away. But Acting like they own the place means that they will go where they want, when they want. If they want attention, they will come hop up on my desk and scream at me or, you know, meow at me um, until I give them pets and only the kind of pets they want. Um, Yeah, chin scratches for the one, um, head nudges for the other. And then once they have met their quota or I have met the quota, they leave. (laughs) And if I try and pet them again, they yell at me. (laughs) They didn't interrupt you. I guess you. you they, is well, there the like a recording? There's it. a recording sign outside. Like a, it just sprays um, like a mist of catnip. That hmm, um, that could be a future strategy. I don't see any paws underneath the door, um, so that's a good sign. Sometimes that happens. I, I'll probably open the door, and one of them's going to be like crouching out there. Like, yeah. wait, what, what? What were you doing? You locked us <laughs> out. Like this is unacceptable. <laughs> Casey Miller, thank you so much for your time. People have been asking me to have you on, so I'm glad that we got a chance to talk. Uh, it's actually a, a total pleasure to engage with you. Um, and oh, there's thank a you. lot was... more that I want to hear about that we didn't cover in this short time. I, I thought I was rambling the whole time, so I'm you were, glad that but you that's what derived. I like. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. No, good. ramble's good. Um, yeah, because my, my brain is um, sometimes put together, but most of the time it's not. There was a lot of chronology. Times. I think we got the chronology down pretty good. Better than a six-year-old. You're better than a six-year-old. Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't even functional at six years old. Remember, I, I had trouble with the story. I mean, you're better than the average six-year-old at... at, at okay, oh, good, there. good. So, okay. Like, you've surpassed that. You've surpassed that. You're the... Yes, I've made it. <laughs> I am... Yes. Okay. All right, let me uh, stop the recording.